Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. We've got a really special show for you guys today. Uh, this is be the first time we've had a celebrity industry guest on, and we are so pleased to be talking to Ed Solomon today, the co-writer of the Bill and Ted trilogy. His credits also include uh, Men in Black, uh, Now You See Me. So we're very excited to talk to him. We're going to discuss... Uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's different iterations that it went through. Uh, if you want ever wanted to know the origin of Station from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, we get into that. And we also talk about his work on the X-Men movie, uh, 2000's X-Men, as well as uh, his work on uh, Charlie's Angels. And so it should be, it's a really fun conversation. Uh, please uh, join us. Yeah, it's, uh, I think you'll find it interesting if you're at all interested in like, why it took so long for face the music to happen he also reveals like uh the original ending to bill and ted's excellent adventure how they had to change the ending to bill and ted face the music um and just kind of like the difficulty and getting that script sold and made and honestly it's just a really I, i thought a really insightful and candid conversation with someone who's been in the business of hollywood screenwriting for a while and kind of is very honest about the ups and downs and ins and outs of kind of how it works yeah, super insightful. I would definitely like I think, you know, it's always good to talk to sort of veteran screenwriters because they're going to give you sort of the you know, the both sides of the business. It's not, you know, that once they, you know, because they're so established, they can sort of speak candidly in a way that I think that someone who's just entered might be a little bit more guarded. For sure. Uh, so with that, let's let's get talking to to Ed Solomon. We are so happy to be joined today by screenwriter Ed Solomon. Ed, thank you so much for coming on and joining us on the Collider podcast. Oh, man, it's great to be here. Thank you for having (laughs) me. Um, First of all, we want to say congratulations. We're all huge fans of Bill and Ted Face the Music at Collider. Uh, It's been like one of the few uh, uh, pieces of joy in 2020. And that seems to be kind of a common theme from a lot of people who got to watch it. Um, what has your experience been like to the reaction to the film? Incredible relief and a sense of incredible joy because for years we were fighting to get this movie made and it was falling apart. Like on many different occasions, it just fell apart. It, it <laughs> We were struggling to get financing. We finally got it set up after years, almost a decade. We lost it. You know, it's like we we keep getting to the altar and they go, you may now kiss the bride and you pull the veil up and then the, the skeleton disappears into dust. <laughs> and we, we were fighting and fighting and fighting. And we finally, finally got the thing where it like was all set and we were prepping and we were two weeks from production and we lost our major funder. And we ended up scrambling and people put money back into the movie. And we, we thought, I thought we were going to be dead again. And the idea of having to face all the people that we had been promising this movie was going to be happening uh, and, and say, we're so sorry, it's not happening again. That was, 
I was just dreading. And then once we started making the movie, I didn't know, you know, how people would react because I've never been involved with something that's had this much anticipation, not from like a wide base of people, but from a narrow base, but deep. And so I just didn't want to let anybody down. So when we started getting the response we were getting, I was just greatly relieved. Comedy sequels are notoriously difficult to do. Was it always you needed Bill and Ted to be older or was it something that this is the right time to tell this this story? It's different enough now that it would feel fresh. When we started telling this story, everyone was 12 years younger and we were fighting to get it made then and we couldn't. And in a way, I'm really glad. Not because um, I would have you know, wished for the world to be so messed up because I wouldn't have, but we certainly didn't realize that the movie would be coming out with this much, I wouldn't call it a dystopia, but this much angst and social unrest. And so we didn't know that the movie would be a weird little balm, maybe a 90 minute you know, diversion from this kind of thing. So that was one reason that I guess in a weird way, we were lucky we waited or we didn't wait. We just waiting got forced on us. The other thing was at every year that that Alex and Keanu aged, every year that we aged, I just feel like it made the themes of the movie slightly more nuanced, you know, and and so instead of being in their 40s, Bill and Ted are in their 50s. And it just made it to me more interesting, more tinged with new with uh, different emotions, sadness, disappointment, fear. Uh, stress, you know, it just all that got richer as the time went on. So in a way, you know, look, again, I don't want the world to be a shithole like it is right now. But in a way, uh, we just got lucky in terms of it coming out now, strangely. One of the things I really love about this movie and and one of the things I love about the the trilogy as a whole is that Bill and Ted are such good dudes. They have such empathy. And I was especially struck in this movie. Um, like they have empathy for the antagonist, for Dennis. Like they're just very compassionate, good guys throughout the whole thing. So there's not like there's conflict, but it's never nasty. Um, but I was wondering if that was something that you guys worked at is maintaining a sense of empathy or compassion, or if that was something you guys were talking about as you were putting this together. It's something that just naturally occurred in the characters themselves when we first came up with them. We just found ourselves. I guess abiding in this mental state that was so positive and it was so fun to be in that state. Cause I don't think Chris or I naturally are that way. Um, at least I try, you know, I, look, we all have our pessimism and our anxieties and our stresses, but Bill and Ted, they feel stress, they feel pressure, but they, they don't lash out at other people for that. Um, they'll they'll feel something really deeply, come up with a solution, and then go forward with all this optimism, which uh, is a fun headspace, like this the headspace of just play, the headspace of respecting everybody, the the headspace of I guess being excellent, I guess for lack of a, a better word. Um, so that's just fun to play, and then when we hit them now, uh, we did say, well, where are they emotionally? And we always kept coming back to this thing of, but they're still Bill and Ted, but they're still Bill and Ted. And even when Chris and I would write something that was slightly, let's say, treacherous, like they, there was a scene, the, the original scene with death, 
they were kind of lying to him a little bit. You know, they were kind of, they were trying to conjole him into coming back. And the guys, Alex and Keanu, were like, this doesn't feel right. This is a bit negative, isn't it? And we were like, you know what, you're totally right. And um, so to that extent, we talked about it. But for the most part, we just felt it. We just felt where would they be right now? And that just felt like them. One of the things I really like about this trilogy is that it makes some very bold swings. And I, I do have to ask you about one of my favorite swings, which is in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Station. And Station is just such a weird character. And I kind of want to know the genesis of Station. And if at any point you got pushback on this weird alien creature <laughs> that breaks into two, becomes one. The last part is easier to answer. The guys coming together and then becoming one, that was Pete Hewitt who directed Bogus Journey. That was his idea. He thought thematically it made sense to people like becoming one or to two creatures, I guess, becoming one. But Station himself, the truth is, uh, Chris and I were being forced, asked, forced to rewrite the third act of Bill and Ted again. It was I don't know why they thought we couldn't do it. I remember it had to do with Bill and Ted trying to overcome their fears. And it was like the Easter Bunny and Granny S. Preston and like. They were like monsters. I, I don't really remember exactly, though. I understand that in Evan Dorkin's comic book adaptation, I believe he used the early script. So I think that stuff might be in there. I'm not sure because I haven't seen it. But um, we were being asked to rewrite it. And we had this other ending that took place in the police station. And I don't even remember what it was. But what I do remember was we were totally punch drunk. And it was super late. And it was on my computer. <laughs> And I deleted like 20 pages, uh, including something that was interior police station, except for some reason left dangling on the screen was the word station from interior police station. And Chris and I were so punch drunk, so out of it, that we just started going station, 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 station. Having bizarre late night, I think it was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., conversations only using the word station and for some reason partly anger at having to rewrite again and partly just frustration and partly who knows what youthful uh, idiocy we just said okay <laughs> we're putting a martian in named station and we're not budging <laughs> and because the the sequel was both rushed the script was rushed which i think has created flaws in the script i don't think we ever got the third act right of bogus journey as as screenwriters, but also production was rushed. We started shooting in January and it released in the summer of the same year. So that was like super fast to, to start a movie and then release it, distribute it. So it was also an early edit. You know, it was, it was probably our first or second cut of the film that was out to the public. So because of that, we didn't get a lot of challenge because there was no time to challenge us. Suddenly there was a Martian named Station that exists solely because of a typo that we willfully dug our heels in and decided to make sure stayed in the movie. I'm not sure it was a good idea. Oh, I think it was a brilliant idea. idea. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a theory which has been going around this weird little meme that Kid Cudi is the, the human incarnation of Station because he says Station at the end and he's the scientist who has all these ideas in Face the Music and he's like the science knowledge. And I wish we thought of it because that would have been a super cool thing to do at the very end of the movie. Just Cuddy just quickly becomes station and disappears. That would have been awesome. <laughs> he was so excited to say station. I wish I'd thought of it on set 
and been like, could we do it just quickly, like flash and have them be stationed? But no. That would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Face the Music, I think it, it it works tremendously well, and the finale is super emotional. But I know the script went through a bunch of different permutations, and, and you guys had to make this for a price point. And I know there were bigger budgeted versions. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about some of the, I guess, what the larger version of this movie would have been. Sure. Well, the script transitioned quite a few times over the years, especially the end. And the end was the thing we were working the hardest on. And the irony of it all, and maybe it's not irony, is figuring out what the song was came down to the final minute as well. We were joking that we need to write the song that will save the movie about the song that will save the world. Um, We always knew that writing a song and making the song so good, quote unquote, that it would, quote, unite the world was an impossible task and we're setting ourselves up for just failure. And so we we gradually started to realize when we were trying to figure out, well, how do we get out of that idea, you know, gracefully that, okay, it's not going to be about the song per se, like the quality of the song. It's going to be about the fact that everyone plays it together. And we actually, unfortunately, uh, we had some extra things we were going to shoot that we had saved money for and time for. Uh, once the, the third act was edited, we were going to see what we needed and, and add in a few things to add more context to it and have a wrap up for the characters. We had all this planned and written, but with the unfortunate, you know, with COVID, uh, we were unable to do any of that. So we had to uh, work editorially to get kind of what we were hope, hoping to get on a narrative level. Um, but the script itself did transform a lot over, over the years. Our first draft that Chris and I wrote in 2010, I think. Uh, so we met with Alex and Keanu at Alex House in 2008. We, we pitched them an idea in 2009 that they said, go write script. And in 2010, we wrote our first draft. That first draft, and this will be a, a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, so... Um, but, you know, that first draft, the ending of the movie was really small. Like, uh, it, and Bill and Ted had, we had a scene at the beginning where Bill and Ted had 20 years, it was then 20 years ago, it would have been 30 years ago now that the movie came out. But in 2010, it was 20 years ago, they had put $100,000 down to rent the Rose Bowl for their 20th, like their triumphant 20th reunion tour. And when we meet them in the movie, when it opens, uh, they have sold literally zero tickets. And we had a scene where they went back to negotiate with the guy to try and get their money back, basically. And the guy was like, uh, no, uh, you're, you're stuck. And <clears throat> excuse me, the whole movie uh, was moving toward this ending. And the guys were thinking, well, we're, it, it obviously must be at the Rose Bowl. Obviously, we we're going to fill the Rose Bowl with this triumphant song. We just don't know how. And the whole movie happens like like it happens. They see themselves. They go into the future. Their lives get worse and worse and worse. And they never get the song. And they arrive at the Rose Bowl and it's empty and there's no instruments there. And it didn't happen. They failed and they go home. And they sit down in their living room and it really and you're like one minute from the end of the movie and they realize they failed. They feel like they failed. And then they hear music coming from the other room 
and they walk in and they look and they see it's they see their kids and they realize it was never them and the movie's over. That was the first ending that we had. And Alex and Keanu, I think correctly, were like, uh, kind of a bummer for sort <laughs> of a small like and, and we've had this experience on all on the first two Bill and Ted movies where I thought a smaller ending in, in Excellent Adventure, the movie ended in the classroom. And I personally always thought and I fought for that idea. I was wrong. It's more powerful if the people in their classroom, this is what I thought incorrectly. We had set up that Ox character who says San Dimas High School football rules and Randolph and Biff and there was Buffy and there was Jody. There were all these other kids that always gave Bill and Ted shit. And thought they were losers and miscreants. And, they, you know, they'd be like, how's it going, miscreants? And Bill and Ted would be like, we're miscreants. Excellent. And <laughs> we thought the ending would be really powerful if just the looks on their faces as Bill and Ted brought the greatest people who ever lived into a classroom. I thought theoretically that that would be the best way to end it. And it just fell flat. So we went in and we reshot with that kind of rock concerty kind of ending. The same, we rewrote the uh, the scenes as well a little bit the ending scene to make it bigger and more triumphant but that was a rewrite and then we had to reshoot and we reshot it and then we had to reshoot the ending of uh, Bogus Journey as well and so we kind of were like all right here at the end of Face the Music are we going to walk into this knowing we're going to end up having to reshoot it or should we try to actually make it bigger and and better and so we did I've often had a scenario where you know the beginning know the end and the second act is the tough one on face the music we actually struggled with the first act and struggled with the third act a lot but we always knew what the second act was once they they know what their journey is going to be and they set off we know we must have written the song because they told us we did in the future we just must not have written it yet so let's go into the future to when we have written it and steal it from ourselves like we knew that was the backbone of the story and we knew that that meant that they'd be going forward kind of like a christmas carol that was our, our our idea was christmas carol or it's a wonderful life and we knew that they'd be you know seeing themselves two years five years ten years 40 years uh, and it would be getting worse and worse and worse we always knew that but we, we we weren't sure about how to set them up how much do we need to see uh is it funny to see it like is is ted working in an insurance agency have they given up on rock and roll are they you know or are they still like are they still trying to pursue the, the, the dream? And ultimately, we realized in the beginning, they would never give up. They would never, and also they would definitely never separate. So that was never something we considered that they would, they would ever separate. But the movie was about the pressure they were feeling and the release of the pressure so they could kind of get their Bill and Tedness back and all that. So we realized we didn't need a lot of exposition. We toyed with we wrote a long scene at the beginning, kind of a VH1, where are they now documentary that I, I would love to publish one day, like let people read. Cause it, I thought it was pretty funny. It was like people being interviewed and, you know, it's kind of a mock documentary and Dean, the director quite correctly said, you know what? It just feels like exposition. It feels like almost like medicine we have to take before the movie, we, even if it's funny. So we ended up with just that really short opening the 90 seconds. Like this is all you need to know to, to catch up. And then the third act, uh, I'm trying to think of how it shifted, because it shifted a fair amount. Mostly it was about getting the pacing. And Dean wanted the 
creation of the song to almost be like a lesson in how you write music, you know, like start with an idea and then work it and then rework it and then start again and, re, you know, and build it. And that was the, the trickiest part of the whole movie was getting that song to, to, to work, not feel like a bad idea, you know, not to feel like, uh, like we're trying to show you the greatest song ever written, but rather how a song is created when people just listen and and mix and you know and and sort of crowdsource in a way and the other thing was getting the the big reveal where bill and ted have their big realization to have an emotional impact and that was a lot of work from dean and don zimmerman and dave zimmerman the other you know the editors <laughs> and doug i know <laughs> Of it, um, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but uh, uh, what was it? How, how did was there another? Oh, oh, we had a lot of actual ends. Like um, we had a version that I really loved that did not last very long. It lasted for one draft, where uh, Bill and Ted had to get instruments to everyone in the world in like one, you know, in in one evening they had to get instruments to everyone in the world throughout all space and time. And they were like, well, dude, how are we gonna possibly do that? We can't possibly, we have no way to do that. They said, well, we can't, but there's one man who can. And then we cut to, ho, 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 on the sleigh. <laughs> and then it was Bill and Ted, princesses, uh, on, the, on Santa's sleigh, sort of using Santa magic, because Santa can go all around the world in one yeah. night. And they were actually going down chimneys. Um, <laughs> and they were having a, like a great time, and it was this crazy montage that we had written. That did not last because and I thought, oh, it's like the, the antecedents for this movie. It's like a Christmas carol. It's a wonderful life. So maybe it's a Christmas movie. Maybe this is a Christmas movie. And we have Santa at the end. And Al, I think Alex Winter liked it briefly, but I don't think anyone else thought it was a good idea. And then we ended up scrapping that. But then we realized, well, we have the answer in the movie. It's the phone booth and we already are dealing with multiple futures and multiple pasts you know in you know in uh, you know entwined futures and pasts well maybe we can use that idea and just you know we we had planned to shoot a lot more that was one of the things we planned to shoot more uh which was alex and keanu all throughout time handing out instruments to people all over the place but it was not something we were able to logistically do once we had the, the COVID situation. But that was one of the things that I was talking about earlier that we were going to add in, but didn't. Uh, one of the things uh, I, I, the Shout Selects has brought has put out a great uh, Blu-ray of the duology of the first two Bill and Ted movies. And I was wondering if there are plans to package all three together in a new sort of Blu-ray set. Well, I would be interested to see that. That would be really cool. I I imagine someone, whoever controls the rights, has those those plans to do that. Um, I hadn't seen... Is that the Blu-ray that came out about five or six years ago, the Shout one? Um, I think it came out a little bit more. It's the it's the most excellent collection. Uh, the one that's the... I have the, the, the DVD of the, the, the DVD collection, and then I think Shout got them on Blu-ray. So I think that was a few years later. All I know is I had not seen the movies, either of them, since they came out. I'd not seen either. And I'm going to say about six years ago, seven years ago, 
Oh, we did the DVD commentary, so I had to, I got to watch them. When you say I had to watch them, I got to watch them, and it was interesting to see. But you're watching and talking, so it's not like you're really getting to watch the movie. And we did not watch the movies, or I didn't. I don't know if Chris did, but I didn't watch the movies before we wrote this draft. In a way, and I wondered if I was wrong to not watch them. And then, um, in preparation for seeing the final cut of Face the Music, I actually watched Excellent Adventure again, and I thought I'm really glad I didn't watch it before we wrote Face the Music because I think I would have been trying to copy it too much. And I think Face the Music has its own tone and its own, it's different from the others. And I, I'm kind of glad I didn't watch it. That's a really long way of answering your very succinct no, question. No, it's a good answer because again, I think it's, I, I'm trying to think, I can't really think of like another comedy trilogy that's been as successful as Bill and Ted. And I think that's partially because they're such different from each other. One of the things we thought was most interesting about pursuing this was have people ever taken comedy characters that were teenagers last time we saw them or 20 or 21 or however old they were in Bogus Journey and revisit them in middle adulthood and not tried to rehash the characters, but rather where would they be if they were now? You know, let's, you know, because that was a choice that we did discuss early on do we want is it and by the way we answered this immediately it wasn't we didn't have to overthink this at all do we want to see them kind of like they were they're exactly the same they almost like they haven't grown up but they're in 40 and now 50 year old bodies and we're like no no we want to go for the truth of it and hopefully people will want to go along for that ride with us. I mean, as I mean, Adam knows this, we, uh, <laughs> we had real issues when we first wrote the, the first script. When, once we got a draft that Alex and Keanu were with us on, like the first draft we wrote that they said, well, that's too small an ending. We went back and we added in a lot of stuff about time coming undone and all reality and all, all that. And that was, I think a better fitting way to go with this movie, as it turns out, of course, they were, they were right um, and have been great partners to us for the whole time. Once we had a draft that they liked, we went to MGM, which owned the rights. Like, like we were so proud. We went in, me, Chris, Alex, and Keanu, march into MGM. We have a script for Bill and Ted because we wrote it on spec. For, we wrote a spec script for a property we did not control, that one place controlled. Some people might say it's a utterly boneheaded business move, and I guess our deals reflect that it was a boneheaded business move because I've, I was paid less money for Bill and Ted's Face the Music than I've been paid since uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out in 1991. <laughs> so, uh, and in fact, I think I made less on I might have made less on Face the Music even than Bogus Journey, and that was uh, not very much money. Um, but we didn't do it for the cash. We did it to try and get this movie made. But when we went in, we were so proud. We were like, we have a script. We have Alex and Keanu. And they were treating us so great. But what they really wanted was what they already had, which was a script already written by somebody else that was a reboot of Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted, you know, with young Bill and Ted's. I think they time traveled with a cell phone or something. I didn't read it. And they were like out trying to find hot YouTube stars to 
play the new Bill and Ted, and we were devastated. Hard, hard to believe MGM had a financial meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, they That was, I don't know who, but whoever was leading them at the time, that's where they were headed. Mm. To, to their credit, they put the kibosh on the other one. They didn't want to make our version of it. They didn't think it was commercial. And they did, to their credit, allow us to shop it around town. And we took it everywhere. We took it to every studio and they passed. We rewrote it, took it back to every studio and they passed. We took it to finance, independent financiers. They passed. We, we could get nobody to put money into this thing. They just, they, they didn't think it was commercial. Quite a few studios, three, at the time, I think there were seven major studios. I don't remember, but like three of them were willing to option it and go back with a young Bill and Ted. But we were like, absolutely not. This is the one we, we're, we're, Keanu and Alex, A, are our partners, and B, this is the Bill and Ted story we want to tell. And MGM then ultimately, uh, well, what happened was we set it up at a studio called STX. We did a draft for them. They put it in turnaround. We were about to set it up at Lionsgate. They ended up not wanting it. We thought all hope was lost. And then uh, Scott Kroof, who was the producer of the original movies, uh, had gotten contact with Hammerstone, I think through Keanu. I think someone Keanu had worked with put us in touch with Alex Leibovich at Hammerstone. And Alex Leibovich, who is a millennial himself, but a Bill and Ted fan, said, I'm going to fight like hell to get this the money for this, and he raised the money. He put together three different investors. I think there was there were two individuals and a and a and a consortium. That consortium is what fell apart two weeks before shooting. So these two individuals stepped up. Um, their names are in the movie are on the credits. That uh, I don't know whether they want to be specifically credited or not. But but we I mean honestly these I'll say David is one person's name and Patrick is another. Uh, stepped up. I hope they make their money back. I hope they make a ton of money. But they, but if it weren't for these guys and for Alex Leibovich and for Scott Kroof, fighting like crazy, we would not have had the money to actually have this movie made. And MGM came back into the fold. MGM, when we got the financing, and also thanks to social media, MGM saw the fan response, which I think shocked them because because Excellent Adventure, it didn't make a ton of money. And Bogus Journey didn't make a ton of money. So the, the numbers, quote unquote, the numbers that the, the money, the beam counter guys, you know, the number cruncher guys look at to go whether this is worthy of a sequel, they did not make sense for a sequel. All we had were anecdotes to go to them and go, hey, I was just at this conference and I was in, this is true, I was in um, uh, Beirut uh, speaking at a film school in Lebanon and I was talking about Men in Black, and I was talking about Now You See Me, and I was talking about Bill and Ted. And the the movie they were the most excited about a sequel for was Bill and Ted, which didn't even get a release in the Middle East, you know. And we would tell stories like this, and Alex Winter and Keanu would tell these stories like, I'm sorry, but wherever I go, this is the question I get asked more than anything. But finally, the social media stuff, I think, is and, – and fans' responses are the things that MGM heard because the numbers didn't make sense. MGM came back into the fold, and with Alex Leibovich and Scott Proof and this money, they agreed to distribute the film. And then, of course, it became illegal to go to theaters. But, uh, uh, but honestly, that my feeling about that was just, hey, man, if pe most people saw the movie 
on their TV anyway. Most people who discovered the movie discovered it over the last 20 years and didn't originally see it in the theater anyhow. So I don't mind that it was yeah, released. It works, it works really well at home. It's not Lawrence of Arabia. It's not, you know. Yeah, yeah it doesn't need, it doesn't need, it's not Tenet. It's not like, you will see this on IMAX or you will not see it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, look, it's a lot more complicated than, you know, Tenet. It's a lot more sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> it almost had Santa Claus. Only one of these movies almost had Santa Claus. Almost one of these movies only has Santa Claus and the Grim Reaper, and which would have been a first. <laughs> uh, we know uh, you have to go pretty soon, um, but I did want to ask you about X-Men, which yeah. is one of the most influential superhero movies ever made. And, uh, you know, you came out publicly and talked recently about how you had a pretty significant hand in that script. And I think people forget at the time it was pretty radical for a movie to be that grounded and realistic in that kind of superhero space. What was that experience like for you of, of creating that story and, and essentially doing something that hadn't really been done before? Well, thank you for framing it that way. I appreciate it. Uh, I, you know, I've made some boneheaded moves in my life personally and professionally, and that's one of my biggest boneheaded moves was taking my name off of it out of a sense of youthful hubris, I think. Men in Black had just come out, and I had worked really hard on that draft of X-Men. I did the first four drafts of X-Men, and I was fired. And one of the reasons I was fired, according to one of the producers who uh, told me, uh, you were hired, uh, the producer was behind me on this, but but said the studio was angry. You were hired to write a comic book movie, they said, and you wrote a movie about real people. And nobody goes to a comic book movie to see real people with real problems. And I was devastated because I've had that happen to me in the past where I have a strong sense of what something would be. Chris and I had it with Bill and Ted. We were told continuously by Warner Brothers, which was the first place that Bill and Ted was set up, you have to differentiate them. One has to be the smart guy, one has to be the romantic, or one is the science guy and one is the lover. Whatever it was, they had to be different. And we were like, no, 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 that's Bill and Ted. They're two halves of the same brain. And they're like, you can't do that. And on Men in Black, literally my first meeting with Tommy Lee Jones, it's either science fiction or it's comedy. Make up your mind. And I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did in the meeting. He did. And I was like, it's not good enough science fiction to be a drama. You know, it needs the kind of leaps of faith that, that the mood of comedy gives you. You Why can't you blend that genre? And here I was on X-Men thinking, this is a great idea. And I owe a lot of this to Brian, to Brian Singer as well. I know Brian has a complicated reputation, but... but um, he was 100% behind this notion of telling the characters stories with a sense of this is them and this they are real. And um, their, their physical um, powers are man outward manifestations of their inner turmoil, their emotional life. I thought that was really cool. And I was really devastated when it wasn't appreciated at the time. And then I was rewritten and rewritten again, and there were literally 13 writers by the end. And I had kept my name on a movie that I was like seventh of nine writers on, and it only worked for two weeks, and then another couple of weeks on set, which was Super Mario Brothers. And I paid no attention to the credit process. I was on vacation, 
when I when it was arbitrated, I don't think anyone wanted credit on Super Mario Brothers. I ended up with credit, and I really hadn't written anything that was on screen. I mean, I had a few things here and there, but certainly not like written by Ed Solomon. I mean, it's me and a few and a couple other people. I was sort of feeling cocky and feeling my oats, and I thought, well, if I'm being rewritten, I don't want credit. If someone else has, you know, changed my, changes the words, I don't deserve and want credit. That's what I thought at the time, and it was stupid. And Chris McQuarrie and I were given the original credit, and we both thought David Hayter also deserved credit. And then I decided, and, and Chris decided also to take his name off, and you know he had his reasons. Um, there was there's been some press saying that he talked me into it. That's not true. He didn't actually talk me into taking my name off it. I chose to take my name off it. I chose to do it in a way that wouldn't hurt the movie. I wanted to do it quietly, but it was such a dumb move. It actually changed my life in a lot of ways because um, I realized that that was super kind of self-involved decision and uh, and it was it caused me a lot of stress and it cost me a lot of money obviously and I was like why would I make such stupid you know why, what what is wrong with me that I would make such a self-destructive choice at this time in my life and it caused me to re-examine a lot of things in my life so in some ways it may be a better person I got into meditation to try to calm some of this stuff down but you know it was a dumb move but I'm proud of having written that and I'm proud of having started that I guess um, I can't take sole credit for it because Chris McCory did a great job David Hayter did a great job and there were quite a few other writers that came in and, and, and worked on the script as well uh, but that was another scenario where I had a strong belief that something could work. And um, while I'm gratified to see that it did work, I wish I hadn't have been so myopic in my thinking and removed myself from the association with it because that was stupid. On a business move, stupid, and on a personal move, you know, and personally stupid. I also kind of wanted, we wanted to ask you a bit, and again, I don't know, Again, with arbitration being so weird, you know, what was your involvement with Charlie's Angels? Because that film kind of came along when they were trying to sort of adapt a lot of sort of 70s television shows. Like there was also, I think, like a Mod Squad movie as well. And so I was kind of curious about sort of trying to take that property and and make it into a film when, you know, based on sort of its, its cultural value. And it's, it's kind of the same way of it's sort of this loosely remembered thing. But it would be hard to say, like in 2000, you know, there's a diehard Charlie's Angels contingent. Well, Charlie's Angels is another one that is part of the weird ricochet that started with Super Mario Brothers. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) I picked picked the right one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because um, Ryan Rowe and I did a, a couple of drafts of Charlie's Angels that I honestly was very proud of and still am. It was an entirely different plot, and we got rewritten. I think the bulk of the credit for that movie, and I know the movie was well-received critically and was a commercial success, and it would make sense for me to then say, and it's because of me, but it's not. I think John August deserves the the lion's share of the credit for that, but there were also, I think, 18 writers on that script. So I, Ryan and I did the first draft. I think the opening scene of the movie where they come out of the plane is ours and some lines of dialogue here and there and the idea for a few scenes but i cannot take credit for much of what's in that movie unfortunately uh it's just not 
I kept my name on it because I had just taken my name off X-Men and realized, okay, dude, I'm not going to do that anymore. Just <laughs> accept the pun, you know, keep your name on something. If you get credit, accept if, if people don't like it, just accept it. If you know, and I, it forced me to develop a relationship with whoever the person is that is getting credited that has my name and my actual self, because so often the work that's on screen isn't the work that you did. Sometimes other people intervene or, you know, or, or in the middle. And sometimes it's just not whatever. They make changes, they edit stuff. And sometimes it is, you know, I, I've had good movies and bad movies. And some of those bad movies are totally my fault. And some are partially my fault and some aren't my fault. And you just have to develop a relationship with that public idea of you where that public idea of you can get all the hits and take all the credit when it's good. And the private you just focuses on what you have control over, which is what I'm writing right now only and not any public reaction. And um, so so for Charlie's Angels for me, uh, I just kind of rolled with it. I just went, ah, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to arbitrate for credit. I'm not going to ask not to have credit. Oh, I got credit. Oh, OK. Um, you know, the draft that Ryan and I wrote, I thought was particularly funny, but it involved uh, and it involved like a, a, a villain cloning supermodels. And but we were told that it was also very ironic. I mean, we were trying to figure out like joke ways to make it to sort of make fun of itself. That was our idea was that it would be very self-aware and kind of poking fun at itself, which it ended up not really doing. And you know, our, our plot was removed. So, you know, I didn't, I can't take the credit for, for that film. Seriously, congratulations on Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, it has been such a wonderful comfort uh, for this year. And I imagined uh, a lot of people like myself will be watching it many, many more times. God, I really, really appreciate that, Adam. Thank you. And Matt, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And uh, we'll see you again. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right, so that was our conversation with Ed Solomon. Again, we are so grateful for his time, for taking the time to speak with us, and and uh, we really appreciate uh, that. And again, if you haven't seen Bill and Ted Face the Music, you should absolutely rent it uh, as we or or buy it. I think you, it is available to own on VOD right now. Um, I think it's a great film. It's very heartwarming. I didn't even we didn't even get into the Dennis of it all. And I, yeah, <laughs> gosh, I meant to ask about Dennis and the daughters. The yeah. Daughters are so good. So uh, definitely check that film out. Um, all right. With that, let's move into Recently Watched. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Um, so I decided to revisit American Gangster this weekend, which I had not seen since it came out in 2007. Um, and it was a big deal when it came out. I remember it was a project that had been kicked around for a long time. A bunch of big stars had been attached. Um, the you know eventual version was directed by Ridley Scott, written by Stephen Zalian, who wrote Chandler's List, uh, Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe based on a true story um uh, basically kind of this duality of of, of this uh criminal named frank lucas this gangster um who was kind of smuggling heroin into the united states and then the detective who's trying to kind of build the case and figure out figuring out where this heroin's coming from and how it's getting into the city and tracking it down uh it takes place during the vietnam war so that's a big theme around it um when i first saw it i wasn't like a huge fan of it. I think I liked it, but I don't think, I don't know. I, I was kind of okay on it. And I, I liked it a lot when I saw it um, this most recent time, 
Although, I mean, so Denzel is really good in the movie. Russell Crowe is fantastic in the movie. I think the direction by Ridley Scott is really good. Uh, Harris Savides is a cinematographer. Um, and, you know, it looks fantastic. Uh, but it's so like the cast is incredible. You've got like Chiwetel Ejiofor, Kibuting Jr., Idris Elba, um, you know, Josh Brolin's in there, Riz's in there. But it's so much about race that I wonder what the film would look like now, because it's kind of telling the story of, you know, Frank Lucas, a lot of cops overlooked him because he wasn't part of the mafia. And so it was kind of like, a you know, a black guy rising up the ranks and and becoming this kind of drug kingpin in, the, in that era. A lot of the cops um, and kind of officials didn't really believe it. And I think the film kind of like tugs at that a little bit, um, a little bit into the race issue. But I don't think it it really examines it as well as it maybe could have. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got a white director and a white uh, screenwriter. So I would be curious to see how it's made today. Not to say that Ridley Scott's a bad filmmaker. I do think it's a really engaging and interesting film. And I do like kind of the duality of the two characters. I mean, Russell Crowe's character is supposedly the do-gooder cop, but his life is kind of in shambles, whereas Denzel Washington's character lives by a very pretty strict moral code himself. Um, I mean, he's a dealer and a murderer and a criminal, but he has very strict um, kind of ethics that he follows. Kind of, um, you know, it's another one of those like he. It's one of those films where like the two main characters don't beat until the end of the movie, <laughs> so you don't really see them on screen together for a while. But yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a fascinating watch. I just had a bunch of time on a Saturday um, and not much uh, going on, and I was curious to check it out because it's a really long movie as well. Um, so if you're interested in revisiting it, I think it's well worth checking out again. That was like my favorite film. Like I declared that like my like in my top ten of two thousand seven. It was like this is the best film of two thousand seven. And then I never revisited it. And I sort yeah. of made a rule, and it didn't stick with me. Like it blew me away when I saw it in the theater, and yeah. it didn't stick with me. And and so I sort of made it a point from then on, to sort of be like, if you're gonna say something's your favorite film of the year, give it a second watch. <laughs> um, but I will say, like I think it's a. I, I agree that uh, it's a good film, and that but it, its racial component would could use a different perspective. I think it's fair to say based on his own comments that really Scott may have a blind spot when it comes to race as yeah. seen by Exodus gods and Kings. Yeah. Um, so I, I would be curious to see how, uh, how that subject was handled by a, by a filmmaker of color. It's also just really fascinating. I mean, I also watched Jonathan Demi's Manchurian candidate this weekend as well. Um, I think I made the Denzel Washington connection, but like looking at these movies that Hollywood used to make, which are just like extremely expensive character dramas. Yes. Like the scope of them is huge. Like nowadays, American Gangster would be a limited series on, um, you know, probably HBO. Um, but I don't think it would have that same. And I think the budget was only a hundred billion, but that's because Ridley Scott can shoot incredibly quickly. Yeah. Uh, I, the, the prestige drama is sort of gone away. Like Netflix yeah. will finance it, but yeah, yeah. beyond that, it's it's like a studio is not going like, and like, I mean, we've, we've seen that with like Paramount. Paramount's like, we want no part of whatever Martin Scorsese is doing because yeah. it's too costly. <laughs> yeah. So Martin Scorsese is like, okay, uh, we'll go to Netflix and spend $250 million. Right. Or Apple. Apple is where Apple. That's right. That's Apple right. plus a, Apple TV plus is for, I have no idea why Killers of the Flower Moon has to cost $250 million. Especially now, apparently the rewritten script is like a like a meditation on like white complicity in the erasure of like uh, Native American cultures. <laughs> Whereas the original but then script Thanos was... shows up. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, the original script was like to catch a serial killer because it is based on a nonfiction right. book and it is about yeah. that. But I think 
Scorsese pivoted to this more dramatic, but it's still $250 million. Uh, why? <laughs> like, why? I, I mean, mean I if you're Scorsese and you can spend it, go for it. But Well, I will say... It costs as, as much someone... as one Avengers movie. <laughs> as someone who watches a lot of these uh, uh, extinct, expensive character dramas, there is something lost there when you make it for $50 million. That scope... Again, the scope of American Gangster, like it was shot on the streets of New York City. I don't know where they shot the Vietnam stuff, but it looks fantastic. Like it, you can feel the difference a lot of times when someone's on a back lot or they're in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, it just that, that fucking garbage roll. <laughs> yeah. They shoot everything in Atlanta. Atlanta is not the Ozarks, Matt, and yet they shoot. And it's not Tulsa test. either. And yet here we are with and Watchmen. Yeah, <laughs> here we are. Um, yeah, there's something I miss about that. Even uh, you know the the Manchurian Candidate remake that I watched of Demi, it it feels very expensive because it's just going a lot of places. So. Sure. Um, I've been busy going to TIFF. Uh, so the Toronto International Film Festival is is underway. No press or industry were invited to Toronto. Uh, there, there's a film festival in Toronto right now, but it's only for ticket you know, people who buy tickets. If you're press and industry, you are relegated to a virtual, uh, you know, festival where you can watch screeners online. So that's what I've been doing, which isn't terrible. I mean, it's weird. It's certainly weird to be like, I'm watching TIFF movies, but I'm also like at my computer watching them on my monitor. And, and yet I think in some ways it's sort of, it's tested films in a way that they would not normally be tested. Like I think they're the theatrical experience tilts in the favor of a film. Like it, it immerses you in a way that like with no distractions. And so if a film is captivating to you, even when you're just at your computer screen, I think that speaks a, a great deal to its quality. And that sort of leads me to my favorite film, of the festival uh, Nomadland, which is the new film from Chloe Zhao. Um, and the, the plot is, is based on a true story. It's based on a nonfiction book about these sort of nomads who they just live in vans or RVs and they just kind of, they follow the work and then they just kind of live, you know, in these little sort of uh, communities that are mobile, they're nomads. And what really sort of struck me about the film, I mean, obviously it, it, it's really beautifully made. If you've ever seen uh, Zhao's previous film, The Writer, you know that she has just a great warmth and sort of humanity to her films and, and they're gorgeously shot. Um, but what, what I really appreciated about Nomadland is that it kind of shatters the, no it does, it's, it would be easy to tell the story and be like the American dream left people behind. And yes, that is true. The film takes place in the fallout of the great recession. What's interesting is that the film kind of shatters the paradigm completely instead of being like, well, how can we ever chase the American dream? It's like, well, what if we didn't need it? What if our lives aren't completely dependent? The value of our lives is not completely dependent on our economic status. And when you, when you sort of frame it that way, you get a really beautiful story about human connection what drives us, what scares us, and, and where are we going? And I think the way Nomadland unfolds just really touches on all these things in a, in a surprisingly joyful and hopeful way that I was not expecting given, you know, there was a recession and this woman lost her, her husband, her home, her job, everything, and she's living out of a van. That sounds like a bummer, but it's not. <laughs> In the way that the film is framed. And it's not Pollyanna about it. It's just, it's, it's resilient. 
and uh, I was really moved by it. And I'm very excited for other people to to get a look at Nomadland when it arrives later this year. I'm really excited to see that movie. Uh, I was very jealous that you saw that. Also so curious to see what Eternals looks like. I have so much, like I was already excited for Eternals, um, but the more I hear about it and the more I see from Zhao, I think Eternals could be something very special. Like the fact that we already know that Eternals has like a Bollywood number tells me that like she is doing something very different with her Marvel movie. Yeah. I really can't wait to see that. Um, yeah. The TIFF experience, I don't know. It's strange. Cause there is something to be said for like when you're on day, like five or six of TIFF and you're exhausted and you're sitting through a movie you don't want to see. And you've already seen three movies that day. Uh, can kind of take away from the viewing experience. But mm-hmm. as you say, there are those films that that really it just let you kind of immerse into it. Like I remember specifically seeing A Star Is Born at like 8.45 a.m., which is not the ideal condition to see that movie, but was still just absolutely gutted and like emotionally drawn in. Um, and yeah, I can't imagine watching A Star Is Born on my laptop. <laughs> for the first time well there's also just the weirdness of it i mean one of the stories you and i like to tell is about how like i had to go from we we just finished watching darren aronofsky's mother and i had to run into three billboards outside ebbing missouri and literally it was like on the schedule i think it was like a three minute gap between when my mother ended and three billboards began and we, it was just, it, it was in like a, it's like in like a multiplex. So it was like the theater right across the hallway and we got in line and you got in and at me, they were like, we have no more seats left. And I was like, oh, so he's sitting on the front. Yeah. I, I'm sitting in the front row. For, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a weird experience, but even like, I remember like last year, like we saw like Ford V Ferrari and we were super jazzed about it. And then we immediately got into the theater. Like our next film was Joker. And it's like, you oh, just, that's right. You have to like get handle that whiplash. Yeah. Yeah. You have like a 30 minute break in between. Um, but you're still like in the same multiplex and sometimes even in the exact same theater. Yeah. And it's like, so, oh, yeah. It smells like nachos and hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this it. has been an interesting tiff. Um, and it's, not, it's really not been the same festival in terms of like the the films that they're showing because like, in an alternate universe, like like films that are about to hit Netflix in October, like Rebecca and Trial of Chicago Seven, and uh, well, those two are and Mank. Mank. Mank isn't October, but is coming soon. I would be. I think all three of those films probably would have come to TIFF under yeah. normal circumstances, but none of them are playing. So it sort of like lets smaller films, I guess, shine through. Um, but it's been interesting. It's been an interesting experience. And I, I, I guess I should just get used to it because I don't see Sundance happening as a normal festival in 2021. Yeah, I think they've already announced they're going mostly virtual. So. Yeah. So, which, hey, if you want me to stay home and be warm and just stay in my house, <laughs> I can do that. But again, I, I do think something is missed by the theatrical experience. And Domino's is no, no Devanzas. So, oh, Devanzas. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And thanks again to Ed Solomon for for dropping by and talking to us. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. You can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive. Brought to you by my friends 
over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect start to set any holiday vibe. The Home Bar makes over 30 cocktails, brews, ciders, and more, all at the push of a button. From cosmopolitans to old fashions, each pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. Insert the pod and let the Home Bar do the work. Go to drinkworks.com to order your Home Bar and see all available drinks. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc. Used under license. Please enjoy responsibly.